Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark. And this week we will be talking to Karen Armstrong on what she calls the lost art of scripture. Have we forgotten how to read our sacred texts and what would it even mean to read them correctly? Those are the questions Samir Rahim, our arts and books editor, is going to be putting to her just shortly. But before that, I'm joined here in the studio by Samir to talk about um, what counts as a scripture these days. Yes, it can be anything, it seems, uh, not just religious. There's the sort of UN Declaration on Human Rights. That's often a sort of scripture for people. I remember in my sociology class at school, um, the teacher put that up on the wall as a sort of, as it were, declaration of universal values to which we should all subscribe. There's the US Constitution, which is a kind of scripture for some people, um, and debates over how uh, closely to adhere to it, often take a slightly religious tone, don't they, with the originalists, the people who feel that you should just uh, subscribe to exactly what it says um, in the text, opposed to people who feel like you need to reinterpret it for the times. So the idea of having these sacred books um, still exists today. Um, and of course, in the field of politics, I think the word shibboleth, which is one that gets bandied around in politics quite a lot as a kind of old fossilized belief that comes from scripture i think as well doesn't it and so people think of things like labor's clause four for a long time was described as a shibboleth you couldn't touch yes i think um it's in, it's, it's a phrase from the old testament and it's to do with the fact that whether you could pronounce it correctly to find whether you were in or outside the tribe certainly clause four was one of those things where you know the text was being reformed, as it were. Tony Blair said, "We don't believe this anymore, so we need to we need to get rid of it. We need to ignore it." And that, um, as Karen Armstrong uh, discusses with me, is a parallel to some of the same arguments happening in theology. So, in the 1960s, one theologian said that, you know, paraphrasing here, but only a little, that you know, there were some things that Saint Paul said were just a load of rubbish, basically. So we just we don't need to 
we don't need to worry about them anymore. The truth is that all religions and all sort of political beliefs are a set of um, broad principles that people pick and choose or emphasise depending on their interpretation. I always remember this interview I read with an ageing Enoch Powell, who amongst his other famous and infamous uh, things was was a real scholar of the Bible. And Translator been, of the New Testament, of course. And he, he dug into it all and concluded, I can't now forget, but of the four Gospels, um, one of them, perhaps, let's say John, was right and the other ones were all a load of rubbish that had been written later on, and uh, which meant that huge things that people take for granted in Christianity, like the Christmas story, just didn't apply at all. And he was pressed on this, so does this mean you don't believe that Gabriel visited Mary or whatever? And he said, well, I don't believe as a historian, no, but as a member of the Church of England, I do, and that counts for much more. And so you get into this kind of um, different types of truth discussion quite quickly, don't you? And that's absolutely fascinating, because if you take something like the Christmas story, I mean, the latest biblical analysis pretty much shows that Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. Like the idea that um, there was a census and that he was uh, his parents, uh, Joseph and Mary, were sent to their hometown to be registered. The Romans never did anything like that, and there was no record of anything like that. Um, he was from Nazareth. He's called Jesus of Nazareth, and it's most likely that he was born there. And Bethlehem was David's city, so you just needed to somehow get Jesus and Bethlehem together in some way to make that connection with King David. But does that mean that we're going to rewrite all our Christmas carols? No, not really. Um, So it's perfectly possible to scientifically or historically, as it were, believe that Jesus didn't really have much to do with Bethlehem. Um, And in fact, visit Bethlehem, as I have, and find it a a kind of fascinating, moving place. Because the meaning of what the birth of Jesus means to Christians and to Muslims, in fact, as well, is to do with um, how these believers have brought their own interpretation to bear. And the the history of that interpretation um, is what is in many ways most interesting. What I try to sort of pick up with Karen, and I'm not sure if I really got to the bottom of it with her, is that to what extent are we led by these scriptures or to what extent do we lead them? Because I sort of think that we lead them a lot more than they lead us. Um, But um, I'm not sure we quite got to the bottom of it. I mean, it sounded, um, reading um, Reverend Lucy Winkett's very good review in the new magazine of, of the Armstrong book, as if there was an idea of scripture as something analogous to... Um, an oral tradition of stories. Um, And if you think of it that way, then what you're talking about there, which is um, truths, not perhaps in a scientific sense, but um, shared understandings that mark out a tribe, um, then um, it's easier somehow to um, grapple with that if you're thinking about an evolving oral tradition than it is if you think about fixed letters yeah and that's the most interesting thing really when you when you write down these stories and put them in a in a scroll or in a book they do get fixed in a way that beforehand they were sort of swirling around and retold depending on context and and time um but you know there is plenty of virtue and possibility in interpretation and that's the that's the key thing um the the french philosopher paul ricoeur who um was Emmanuel Macron was his assistant, uh, interestingly enough. He he had this idea of the first naivety and the second naivety. What he meant by that was, essentially, when you're a child, you read a religious text and you take it as truth, mm. essentially. Um, then you would grow up and then maybe develop more sceptical attitude. 
um, hermeneutics of suspicion, he described it as. And you start thinking, well, actually, is this true? Does this factually work out? Does, you know, did these people really say these things at this time? And he felt that the next stage after that was coming into what he called a second naivety. You know, trying to sort of abandon our rational uh, scientific approach to these texts and trying to sort of dig into the inner workings and meanings of them. Now, that is something that's quite difficult to um, argue because it's very foreign to our uh, ways of looking and analysing history, for example. We always try to find out what actually happened. Did Jesus actually say this or do this? Did the Prophet Muhammad actually say this or do this? But maybe the truths that we can say and find about these things are more mystical or spiritual. I mean, I suppose it's also alien, isn't it, to the way we think about most science, not necessarily the kind of sometimes cosmology and you get Stephen Hawking's mind of God or Einstein saying God doesn't play dice and this kind of thing. But most of the time, the scientific method doesn't encourage us to think in the way you're talking about. It does. It doesn't. You're, you're right. But we just had this piece by Phil Bull, didn't we, about dark matter in Prospect, which uh, in which he talked about how scientists are trying to prove what particles may or may not be dark matter, and that they had to go on instincts and hunches and had to believe in things that couldn't yet be proved. Now, they are different processes, because ultimately you will either prove that dark matter is a certain particle or, or you won't. Um, but it's amazing how much intellectual endeavour that is ostensibly scientific does require leaps of faith. Yes, to bring things down to earth just a little bit, Samir, from dark matter. Um, one thing we've been looking at, at quite a lot of detail uh, in Prospect recently is whether or not our politics needs a bit more civic scripture. And interestingly, in the new magazine, we've got a couple of pieces on this uh, theme, which is now quite well worn for us. One from Rory Stewart, Conservative as of the time of speaking, leadership hopeful, uh, who uh, says that he didn't used to like the idea of having to write down the rules of politics, but it's all going so mad these days that um, Britain can't rely on its um, uh, steady um, culture for much longer, and it might need to do so. On the other hand, we've got the lawyer, David Allen Green, who's saying, no, actually, like um, even without a kind of codified central scripture, we um, can... Uh, work out the balances between powers that we need to do and that Britain does so quite successfully. Coming at this then from the very different field of uh, biblical scriptures that you've been thinking about for this interview today, uh, do you think we want more of it or less? We could have a bit more, couldn't we? We could write things down in a more codified way because it depends whether we still trust the people in charge to um, be bound by the cultural conventions that have existed um, for a long time, or rather they can just change things according to their whim. And the problem is, is that polit as politics has got more polarised, the idea of the settled centre ground where everyone kind of agrees on what they should be doing um, has dissipated. Some Tory leadership candidates are talking about shutting down Parliament so they can force through a no-deal Brexit. That was something that, you know, no one had to write that down, that you couldn't do that. It was felt to be something that, you know, it's a strange situation where we might have to write down these things in law now. But the, really the question is, if you were to write down a constitution, first of all, who would do it? Would you gather together a set of, you know, judges, law lords, politicians, whoever, who decides who writes this thing? Um, and uh, secondly, once you do, who has the power to interpret it? 
So, I mean, I've been listening to Jonathan Sumption's lectures, on the Wreath lectures on the BBC, and uh, part of his uh, argument is that um, European human rights law has given us a sort of fixed constitutional um, aspect in terms of uh, um, individual rights, and that judges now have this enormous freedom to interpret it according to the way they want, and that Parliament has been sidelined. Now, that's, you know, relatively controversial argument and plenty of people are, are pushing back against that um, in interesting ways. But ultimately, do we want to create a, a sort of priestly caste who can then uh, decide for us what is right and what is wrong according to uh, a sacred text? These arguments don't really go away. No, and I'm sure we'll be returning to them in the context of politics. For now, though, let's go over to Samir's conversation with Karen. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Karen Armstrong, thank you for being here. Let me just start with the title of your book, The Lost Art of Scripture. What is that art and why have we lost it? Well, uh, we tend to regard scripture as the, these days as though everything it said is meant to be literal, uh, that it's, it's talking the kind of literal historical truth that we expect from our scholarly work today. Uh, but in fact, it's an art form. Um, it was developed in aristocratic societies all the way around the world to sort of bring about a cohesion among uh, people in the newly developing states. Um, and um, it's, it, for one thing, it was a performative art. Scripture wasn't read. Most people couldn't read. Uh, but it was performed, recited, always accompanied by often quite elaborate ritual, so that today, reading the sacred texts is rather like reading the libretto of an opera or an aria. You're missing a lot of the effects because uh, the Quran, for example, is called, the word Quran means recitation. And the uh, actual uh, recitation of the Quran uh, evokes huge emotion. It, it, it's, it's a great skill to be able to chant the Quran uh, beautifully. And that, that whole musical uh, element touches 
us at a level much deeper than the rational. We hear a lot these days about fundamentalism and fundamentalist readings of religious texts. Um, how did that style of reading come about? Uh, well, it's part of our literal-minded uh, mindset in the modern period where we expect uh, his history, for example, to be factual. In fact, it was probably impossible to write history much before the 18th century when uh, advances in uh, archaeology, uh, the study of ancient languages, it made it possible for us to discover what had happened in the past. In the past, people wrote about events to say what an event had meant rather than what had actually happened and that they would alter the event. And part of the whole uh, ethos of reading scripture was not like fundamentalists where you go back to the text, interpret it literally, and you th go back to the time of uh, Jesus or the uh, St. Paul or, uh, or, or even the Hebrew prophets. Uh, no, all in every culture, whether it's Chinese, Indian, or uh, uh, monotheistic, uh, you, scripture was an inventive art. You are expected to find new meaning in the text and make it speak directly to current circumstances. And that was inquired, required a great deal of ingenuity. Uh, you, you, it, you, it was inventive rather than, um, rather, rather than factual. Whereas fundamentalists have got this literal mindset. And um, it started really at the time of the Reformation when the uh, reformers wanted to go back to the first century uh, go back to ad fontes, they said, to the wellsprings of the faith. But with the best will in the world, you can't, if you're an early modern person, enter the world of first century and remember that these first Christians were all Jewish. Um, it, it, it's not possible. Um, and so it, there's really a kind of perversity. And some fundamentalists in the United States, for example, want to go back to uh, re reproducing the old Hebrew punishments for disobedient children, stoning them to death, for example, as it says to do in the Bible. Uh, this, uh, or you have uh, in Saudi Arabia, where people, Wahhabis want to go back to the conditions of the seventh century. This is unrealistic. We are in the present, and in right up until the re fairly recently. Uh, the, the, the whole skill of the art of scripture was to make it speak to these circumstances now. Let me take you a bit further back in time to the origins of uh, the, the Bible, the Old Testament as Christians call it. Much of it was written in the Babylonian exile, the stories of Adam and Eve and the flood, which is of course derived from um, Gilgamesh. Um, if we can imagine ourselves as the first listeners to these stories, um, were they regarded as um, mythical stories or were they regarded as... Uh, actually true and wasn't in fact the power of them that they had that sort of divine um, uh, uh, divine sort of ordinance behind them. Yes uh, it certainly had divine audience but whether that meant that they were factually true people didn't expect it in the same way and uh, that you'll find there are several side by side in the Hebrew Bible you've got two completely different versions of the creation story um, and uh, you have very puzzling uh, uh, things happening. W one of the things about scripture is that it's meant to unsettle us. It's not meant to provide us with certain truths or uh, certain facts. Uh, it's meant to challenge your ideas. So if you look at the first, cha the first chapter of Genesis, for example, 
you've got a god who is everything a god should be uh, in ch total control of his creation um, and a very benign blesses everything quite impartially quite fairly even his old enemy Leviathan um, and um, but uh, and, and very very sort of merciful and and and, and powerful it, the rest of the book of Genesis completely undercuts that idea of God. Uh, by chapter 3, God has completely lost control of his creation. Um, by uh, the benign, impartial God shows absolutely monstrous favoritism. Um, and we're meant to feel the pain of the people he rejects, like Cain or Hagar or, or uh, Esau. Have you no blessing for me, Father? Esau cries, and no, the answer is. And the nice benign creator God becomes a destroyer at the end, at the time of the flood, and in a fit of pique, wipes out the whole human race, uh, almost. Um, and so this is a, a scripture is unsettling. Um, and uh, people would say, you know, it, it's hard to fit it into a nice, coherent, rational uh, historical uh, f framework. And during the Babylonian exile, for example, um, the old story of the Exodus was completely rewritten to suit because it fitted the to fit the uh, horrible experience of deportation when these exile people were in the sixth century BCE marched off to Babylonia. Um, and um, in the the early part story of Genesis is not the the Israelites are not in Egypt at all. They're probably in uh, the part of Canaan that was controlled by Egypt, uh, and may, and the early the early texts have the Exodus happening entirely in Canaan, their Holy Land. But uh, the Babylonian exiles made it fit their circumstances. So they imagined their forefathers living in a foreign land, in f under a foreign empire, as they did. And that was part of the art of scripture, to say, it, it, you can change this. Because, and it, it's, it's mythical, because there's never a permanent version of a myth. They're always adaptable. So in the book, I detect a nostalgia for oral scripture so when people recited things when they um when it wasn't necessarily fixed in texts and that maybe when they were written down and fixed um we lost something i it's not just that we lost something but simply because they were written down uh but but we can't because we missed the whole oral experience uh singing um uh, singing a text uh singing uh, singing the psalms to uh, the Gregorian chant, for example, does certain things to your mind. Um, it it lulls the, the repetition of the of the Gregorian chant and lulls certain the critical element in the mind and opens you up to the more right hemispheric view of the world, which is more inclusive and more emphatic. Um, I, I and the texts were written down. The Quran was written down quite early. Uh, much, you know, about 30 years after the Prophet's death, they had a text. But that didn't stop them from being inventive. Um, Ibn Arabi, the great 12th, 13th century uh, mystic, said that every time you recite the Quran, it should mean something different to you, uh, because this is God speaking to you. And if it doesn't mean something different to you as you recite it, you're not reciting it intensive, attentively enough. So 
it's not just the fact that it's written down. It's the fact that uh, oral habits of, of scripture left, left things more open. But also, it's our scientific mindset uh, that, that kicked in uh, in the early modern period, where we take things very, very literally. We don't listen uh, to, for texts in, in, in this inclusive way anymore. Uh, but, and we are, our children in schools are instructed in the sciences now more than the humanities, with their, uh, which tell us different things about ourselves, about our psyches, uh, about the predicament of human life uh, than perhaps uh, science alone can do. We need both reason and imagination. You talk about the way in which we read texts now um, and sacred texts as something prescriptive, telling you what to do as a sort of blueprint for life and that we should read texts more imaginatively. Um, but, I mean, there are plenty of commandments in, you know, the Ten Commandments in the Bible. Um, uh, the Quran says that, you know, constantly exhorting people to uh, worry about the day of judgment and, you know, you need to obey God. And it, 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 these texts do tell people what to do as well. And, and part of their attraction to some people is that it gives that guy guidance for life, isn't it? It does. Uh, but what people perhaps don't realize is that they're also telling us uh, to do things uh, it, that religion is not meant to be just a private search or about a pr your private salvation um, or about your private virtue, which is really what it's become in, in, in the modern world quite a lot. Um, because scripture is always telling, giving us a job to do, and it was political. Uh, we, now, uh, since the Enlightenment, we have privatized faith and separated it from uh, politics. And that's excellent because it frees religion from the inevitable injustice that occurs in every state. But that doesn't mean we sit back and should watch uh, wrongdoing uh, or take part in it in, in, and just say, well, that doesn't matter and concentrate on getting into heaven or whatever or obeying the commandments. The monotheistic scriptures all insist on the importance of equity. Uh, and justice in, in society. The prophets of Israel had no time for people who simply said their prayers very nicely in the temple, but who neglected the plight of the poor and the oppressed and didn't rebuke their rulers for their war crimes. Um, Jesus uh, says the people who get into the kingdom are not those who pray devoutly to him saying, Lord, Lord, but he said, those, I was hungry, you gave me to eat sick, naked, and in prison, and you visited me, going out to the poor and the outcast. The Quran, the bedrock message of the Quran, is not just about the last judgment, but it's about, it's insisting that we must, it's imperative to create a just society where poor and vulnerable people with, are treated with respect, and that it's wrong to build a private fortune and neglect the plight of those less fortunate. Um, now, in the um, Eastern world, uh, they too are concerned very much about justice, especially in China. Uh, but they also have great concern for what we now call the environment. The earliest scripture of all, probably the Rig Veda, uh, is dedicated to making people aware of the fragility of the natural order and that it's important to give something back to it in, in sacrifice. Now, these sacrifices did nothing scientifically, but what they did was create in people a sense of reverence for the cosmos and not taking it for granted and realizing that somehow we, we couldn't just 
grab from it. We had somehow to, to nurture it and preserve it. Um, and China too, this, this, is, this is absolutely particular. They see heaven, the ultimate reality, heaven, earth, and human beings creating an equal triad and that they must work together. And you must feel, uh, one of the Chinese sages said, the, the pain of others and the pain of the cosmos as though as you feel a pain or an itch in your own body. So uh, the, the scriptures are not just telling you some nice doctrinal facts about your salvation. I mean, and, and the Hebrew Bible is very iffy indeed about the afterlife. There's no, there's no sort of, and, and Jewish people would say that there's, there's no real teaching about that. Um, and even the New Testament, have, we have a, Christians have a very different view of what comes after death, I think, from, from what uh, the earlier Christians did. Uh, these things change. Uh, but the, we mustn't forget the imperative uh, to act justly and there could not be more two more messages that are more valid for the world today, it seems to me, than equity. Right here in London, one of the richest cities in the world, we have record numbers of people sleeping in the street. And I don't hear the religious leaders coming out and crying out against this, this injustice. We see massive global inequity in the migrants coming to our shores, uh, literally dying to get into Europe. And of course, the environment, which is now, climate change is now an urgent imperative for us. And the scriptures speak directly to these and speak for absolute, committed, practical action. So there's a lot of wisdom in the, uh, in the scriptures that we can we can draw on. There are also things in there that, as you mentioned earlier, just don't fit with modern society and, and, and modern mores. Um, you know, there mainly a male-dominated tradition. Um, and there have been efforts by women to re-interpret um, uh, text in a feminist way. Could you tell us something a bit about that? And what, yes. What... I mean, look, every single society was, um, was male-dominated. Um, and indeed, when I was growing up, my mother told me very firmly that this was a man's world. And I mustn't expect... That's not quite so long ago. But things have changed. Um, and certainly, interestingly, especially in Islam, since the 1980s, women exegetes have been coming to the fore and pointing out um, that the Quran is probably the only scripture that speaks directly to women. And male exegetes, too, male reformers, are saying uh, that we must take a look at, the, at these texts and change them, and that a text that, uh, a scriptural text that cannot be changed is a dead text. Um, so there are, there, there are um, movements for it, but the, we, that's what I mean about not being able to go back to the past, like stoning our dis disobedient children, for example, or uh, stoning a woman called, taken in adultery. We can't go back to those, that past and focus on the position of equity that I mentioned earlier that uh, equity also means equity for the sexes um, and recognize that what happened in the, the scriptures are asking us always to change uh, what the original says and make it speak to the present. And you could, you could use these texts, for example, about uh, women's uh, subservience to show something that was wrong in, in society because these uh, 
scriptures are not talking about ideal societies. I mean, the Hebrew Bible is full of the most hair-raising exploits that go on in society uh, in, in terms of unkindness, injustice, uh, and, uh, and, and we are meant to decry those. And I think this, that we can extend that to the uh, position of, of, of women. This rereading of texts, reinterpreting, reforming, um, isn't that actually part of modernity as well? Isn't that part of the Protestant tradition? It was, uh, but then, unfortunately, Luther, Sola Scriptura, go back ad fontes to the wellsprings of the faith. That's when it began, this desire to return to the past. Uh, but um, the reformers very soon realized that scripture wasn't quite as simple as they thought. They found that they could not agree with one another about basic issues like uh, should there be infant baptism, for example? They couldn't. They couldn't agree about Luther with Luther's theory about justification by faith alone. Uh, they quarrelled furiously with one another, um, and they began to retreat from this idea that Scripture was the was the answer. And Luther gave it up during the Peasants' Revolt, when peasants were fight, fighting for their rights, which were being withheld by the current aristocracies, and. Um, Luther told them, that the peasants, that they must follow the gospel, turn the other cheek, and accept their lot. As St. Paul said, slaves be obedient to your masters. But the peasants had the temerity to have read scripture themselves, and they also quoted scripture to say that Christ had made all men free. Um, and this is where Luther decided, no, we can't let people loose on, on the scriptures in this way. And both Catholics and Protestants brought in catechisms, uh, which were to act as filters, which would filter the sacred text through uh, for the unlettered. And that the unlettered meant everybody who could not read the Bible in the original languages, in Hebrew or Greek, which would obviously be the vast majority of the population. And these catechisms, I think, have been the bane of Christianity ever since. They've created these awful abstract uh, idea doctrines, which they've extracted from scripture. Um, and the, the, the whole idea was to stop people reading scripture. Um, and um, for example, as a child, I had to learn this uh, definition of God in the Catholic catechism. What is God? This vast question. You answered it this. God is the supreme spirit who alone exists of himself and is infinite in all perfections. At eight, that meant very little to me, but I now think it's quite incorrect because God, as St. Thomas Aquinas said, is not a being. God is being itself, esse se ipsum. Uh, he's not even the supreme spirit, that God is other. Um, so these, uh, the, the, the Protestant view of scripture was changed drastically because people found out how complex it was and that there weren't certainties to be derived from it. So what are our modern scriptures? Could you say something like the UN Declaration on Human Rights is a kind of scripture? Yes, you could say that. It is regarded as a sort of scripture. And when, when it's read and, 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 and the oath of allegiance and they put their hands on their hearts, and yes, again, it is telling us what to do, not just giving us a nice warm glow about being American. 
Uh, it is it is a mandate for just action. And of course, we all have these ideals and we must realise we never quite live up to them. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. Carl Armstrong, thank you very much. Thank you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Okay, that is all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Karen Armstrong. You can read about her book, The Lost Art of Scripture, in our new July issue of Prospect, available at WH Smith and other good news agents. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer, and if you've enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review, which really does help. We'll see you again next week, and goodbye. Goodbye.